This is FinTech Takes, the podcast keeping you in the loop on all the latest FinTech trends, news, and ideas. I'm Alex Johnson, creator of the FinTech Takes newsletter, your host and self-confessed FinTech nerd. Let's go. Hello, and welcome back to FinTech Recap. My name is Alex Johnson. I'm the creator of the FinTech Takes newsletter, and joining me as always, the investigator of all fintech udap issues the creator of fintech business weekly jason makula jason thanks for joining me again this is why i updated my linkedin to have my title be chief sleuthing officer but apparently you have a new title that i was not aware of swifty fintech swifty fintech swifty yes and i don't mean the payment system You have to watch out for those double entendres in fintech. No, not the Swift banking system, which I will admit to being very much a novice around, but rather Taylor Swift, who in terms of fandom, I'm also a novice of, but have been coming up to speed. I was lucky enough, Jason is referencing the fact that my wife and I got to go to see the Eras Tour at one of its last stops in the US before it goes international. So we... um Went out to Seattle for the weekend, kind of on a spur-of-the-moment thing. It was for our nine-year wedding anniversary, and my wife is a much bigger Taylor Swift fan than I, although I also am a fan. And so we kind of, at the last minute, bought tickets. I can't tell you how much it cost because when we got to the final screen on StubHub, I blacked out for a second. So I don't know what the damage will be, but it was a great show. Really, truly, like a phenomenon unlike anything that you've ever seen. We stayed with some family outside of Seattle, about an hour outside of town drove in hours before the concert was getting ready to start, got on the train, the light rail that kind of goes to the outskirts of Seattle to kind of take it in to get close to the stadium because he didn't want to park. And every stop along the way, more and more people, mostly women, got on the train. And you could tell because they were just wearing the most sparkly, sequined outfits of various different kinds. Some people were dressed up as witches. Some people were wearing sort of long flowing purple kind of ball gowns. Some were wearing sort of sequin jumpsuits. I myself was wearing sort of a Ryan Gosling and Barbie sort of multicolored shirt that I thought worked well for the occasion. And Jason, it was like three and a half hours that is really kind of almost indescribable. It was an experience. I am admittedly a little bit jealous. I do not have tickets to see her here in Europe. I will say if you were blacked out during the payment screen for a few moments, yeah. I think I just blacked out every transaction while I was in Norway because that country is beautiful, but good <laughs> Lord, is everything very expensive. Really? It helps when it's like priced in crowns and you're like, well, sure. I don't know, is 180 crowns for a beer, a lot or a little. (laughs) It does not help when you immediately see the push notification on your phone and realize just how expensive everything is. (laughs) Well, so I think we've maybe stumbled upon a fintech UX innovation, which is like, I've decided to do this thing. I've committed myself to this thing. Black out all the screens where you're telling me how much it is. Like, just don't tell me. Like, just have the screen go black temporarily. I'll catch up on this later, but like, up to a certain like threshold, just like don't tell me because I don't want to know. That seems like a useful thing, right? I'll just turn off push alerts the next time I'm in a country where the currency conversion slash pricing is unfavorable. <laughs> but with that, should we get started? We got some news? We have tons of news to get to. And in fact, speaking of payments, I think that's going to be a bit of a theme for us for today's episode. So 
If you don't mind, I will start with a headline that I think everyone in fintech has been pretty focused on for the last month, which is FedNow. We haven't gotten a chance to talk about this yet on the podcast, but Jason, FedNow launched probably the most significant development in payments infrastructure in the U.S. since the formation of ACH in the 1970s. I think actually there's a lot of people listening who probably don't know the Federal Reserve plays actually a very big role in creating and facilitating payment infrastructure. And FedNow is sort of the newest and latest addition to that stable of different payment rails. At launch, I think it was roughly 41 banks including some of the largest ones in the country, were sort of launching members for FedNow, plus like 15 service providers, which means that those are non-bank service providers integrated with the system, which I presume means that they will allow banks or other service providers that they work with to then get access through them to the system. As you might expect, given that this is the federal government doing some big thing connected to payments, and as we've all seen on Twitter in the lead up to this, there is a decent amount of controversy and misinformation that's sort of bouncing around the system as it relates to FedNow. So just to sort of run through the list real quick, I don't know that we need to spend a ton of time on this. No, FedNow is not a CBDC, not a central bank digital currency. So please, let's just kill that little piece of misinformation as much as we possibly can. Where there's a little bit more concern, perhaps slightly more justified, that this may introduce increased risk of bank runs. This is something I've talked about on the podcast before. Personally, I don't see it having a huge additional impact on driving additional bank runs or making bank runs more likely, but that's another talking point. And then finally, eagle-eyed observers may notice that the payment processor is listed as one of the banks that is getting access to FedNow. That may seem a little surprising unless you happen to already know that Ajin is a licensed European bank that has branches in the U.S. and thus does qualify as a bank to get access to FedNow. So again, not a conspiracy. But I guess, you know, Jason, just would love to get your take on how you see this whole thing rolling out. I mean, we're very early, but what's your sort of view on FedNow, its sort of likelihood of eating into existing payment rails versus sort of expanding the payments pie. What's your take? I have spent enough time thinking about this and yet still have not come to any sort of firm conclusion other than <laughs> we need to wait and see. Yeah. Right. I mean, I think the point of comparison that I guess call it them FedNow bulls or FedNow maximalists mm. like to point to our you know, PICS in Brazil and UPI mm -hmm. in India. And mm -hmm. I know I'm traveling on uh, well-trodden territory here. I don't think that those outcomes or those arcs of adoption are likely to be what we see in the United States for a whole lot of different reasons. I mean, the first one being, you know, as you pointed out in the summary, that we're starting off with like 40-some-odd banks plus service providers how many banks and credit unions are there in the U.S.? Close to 9,000, something like yeah. that. Not to mention a whole host of non-bank financial service providers. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, in any payment network, the word network is in there, right? I mean, a key component of the utility is the coverage. And ACH, you know, although people may complain that it's slow, et cetera, it has literally universal coverage. As, as far as I'm aware, and I Googled this recently, every bank... And every credit union is on ACH. Yeah. So I mean, I guess I'm taking a bit of a wait and see approach to see, you know, what is the adoption curve from an institutional standpoint look like? Mm -hmm. What does pricing look like? 
what is the, for lack of a better word, like productization, meaning how to end users and consumers experience this. Mm-hmm. And I think that'll give us a better idea of sort of how this plays out in the medium to longer term. I mean, yeah, I think those are the main areas. The consumers, in a sense, already feel like they have access to instant payments, right? Yeah. And this is probably something we've talked about before, but I mean, Zelle, Venmo, Cash App, even if they're not truly instant and they're doing you know something on the back end with ACH, to a consumer, that feels instantaneous. Even on the commercial side, whether it's B2B or interbank, volume of same-day ACH payments reached close to $1.8 trillion in 2022. So you have seen a steady progression of more volume happening in this same-day ACH window. So it's not to say that FedNow doesn't do anything that doesn't. FedNow does have you know, additional features, capabilities that even you know beyond just the speed. But I think we're not going to see that peaks-like adoption curve that Brazil had, particularly because Brazil mandated that institutions support it mm-hmm. and regulated pricing such that it was very, very cheap. And that doesn't seem to be where we are in the U.S. What are you thinking is going to happen here? <laughs> yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I think like PIX is a tempting point of comparison, but it really doesn't make a lot of sense, right? Because even though the rail underlying it is similar, PIX is like a whole consumer facing product, right? I mean, like there's a PIX app that you can download and they're enabling PIX now for recurring payments and you can use it to buy stuff in stores. You can use it to buy stuff online. You know, you can PIX. That's a verb in Brazil. And that's just not the case in the US, as you pointed out, right? This is a piece of infrastructure But the Federal Reserve is not planning to and has no interest in building out that sort of front end layer. And so it's going to be up to banks to sign up for it. You know, as you said, it's a long way to go in terms of building out that ubiquitous network. I would say I'm probably reasonably optimistic that they'll eventually get there in terms of getting to maybe not full ubiquity anytime soon, but like a large portion of the market. And I think one of the reasons for that is when you compare it to other sort of options that exist, you know, thinking about like RTP from the clearinghouse, there's a level of like distrust that like the long tail of banks and credit unions, smaller banks and credit unions have an RTP because the clearinghouse is owned by large banks. So I do think that particularly as the FISs and Jack Henry's of the world get integrated into FedNow and can make it easy for smaller banks and credit unions to sort of get plugged into it, I do think we will see a pretty significant increase in adoption. But to your point, I don't know that we know exactly how this is going to be used. And I think like Venmo is a really good example. Venmo feels instant to consumers. So it satisfies the sort of need for an instant experience. The money doesn't move instantaneously, right? Unless you designate that it should and are willing to pay an extra fee. And I think generally for most use cases, money doesn't need to move fast. And in fact, You know, one of the things that's really interesting is I think there have been a lot of places in banking and financial services where money not moving fast is a feature, not a bug, right? And so, you know, you think about the number of companies, both financial services companies and not, that make money from float, right? That have the ability to go, oh, you know, we'd love for the money to get there instantly, but sorry, we can't do that. ACH, you know, we have to wait. And so you benefit from having that extra two to three days. Obviously, non-sufficient funds and overdraft fees have been a huge source of revenue that has been decreasing recently because of other reasons. But like, there are all kinds of ways to monetize 
the slowness of payments. And the thing I'd be really curious about is in a world in which the sort of default shifts to, no, we should expect money to move instantaneously. Like, what are you talking about? Of course, we can move the money instantly. There's this thing and it's relatively low cost and all the banks and credit unions are plugged into it. Okay, well, once we have that system, what happens to all of those use cases? Are we just getting rid of it? Are we trying to charge for those things, right? Are we going to create new revenue streams where we say, yes, now we can move the money instantly. Are you interested in paying for that? And I always thought Zelle was interesting in kind of a stupid way, honestly, in that they introduced like real-time payments for P2P payment transfers by default for consumers, I guess, as a point of differentiation with Venmo. But for the vast majority of transactions that consumers do with Zelle, I think real-time money movement is kind of overkill. And quite frankly, I think a lot of the banks maybe missed an opportunity to drive revenue with Zelle by not enabling consumers to opt for the money to move in real time and charge them for that. Because if you're trying to pay your rent and it's due tomorrow and you know that you sort of screwed up in managing that payment, you might be willing to pay a little bit more to do that, right? And so I think a really large question that the industry overall is going to wrestle with is what is the right way to sort of add value and add monetization opportunities on top of this ability that's going to become ubiquitous for money to move in real time? And if memory serves, I think you wrote about this in one of your recent newsletters, the opportunity for the rise of some sort of, I hate the word orchestration layer because Mm -hmm. I feel like it doesn't mean anything, but Mm -hmm. orchestration layer where it's like, okay, particularly if I'm a non-financial services merchant. So if I'm an e-com platform, Amazon or an Airbnb, eBay, something of this nature, Maybe I don't necessarily want to deal with all the complexity of figuring out, you know, when should I route, what payment, what way. Mm -hmm. And so Plaid announced that they are, via Cross River Bank, going to support FedNow through Plaid transfer. Mm -hmm. And you can start to imagine if the money movement piece is not your core competency, the opportunity for this sort of like optimization layer of, okay, I don't want to deal with all the complexity and the trade-offs of fraud risk, fraud liability versus speed versus the cost of the payment versus whatever else I'm not thinking of. But there are a real set of trade-offs there, right? Both to the company that's facilitating the movement or the payment as well as the consumer. And so that scenario you're mentioning was like, hey, I'm paying my mortgage or my electric bill on time whatever, ACH, I don't want to pay anything versus mm-hmm. like, oh man, I'm paying my bill late and I want to make sure it gets there. I'll pay that convenience fee to make sure it's sent via whether it's a card rail or FedNow or whatever. So, I mean, that's a space I'm really interested to see how that develops. I think one way of framing the question is, is instantaneous money movement a human right? That's a little bit of a cheeky way to say it, but like, I really do wonder If we're going to get to a point where, like, I always picture Elizabeth Warren when I think about these questions, right? It's like, what's she going to say in a Senate hearing about this topic? And, like, I do wonder if we'll get to a point where the industry is kind of saying, no, this is a value we're providing to consumers. If you want the money to be there instantly, then boom, here's a fee that you have to pay. And on the other side of it, again, because this infrastructure now is being provided by the Federal Reserve And they're not really trying to make money on it. They just need to sort of recoup their costs for operating this network. So it should be relatively low cost. I could also see an argument that says, no, money should just move instantly by default. Banks should have to take on the excessive risk that goes with that. They'll have to 
kind of going to your point about Plaid, they'll have to work with providers that can give them sort of a network level view of the risk that they're taking on by authorizing these payments. I think there's a whole sort of reg E discussion that's going to be had as we get into a world. We've already seen this with Zelle where when money moves instantly, if the consumer authorizes it, there's very little recourse to fix the problem before the money gets pulled out of the system. That's going to ripple through all of this. I really would not at all be surprised if sort of the default understanding of Reg E evolves, either because the industry decides to take that step or if regulators and lawmakers sort of push them in that direction. But I think there's going to be a lot of things that get added to this discussion eventually once sort of money movement is instant by default. So no, it'll be fascinating to watch. Should we jump to the next topic? I think you have another payments one for us, right? Yeah, we somehow hit like a turkey, a hat trick of payments related things this uh, this month. (laughs) The second one is actually two or three thematically linked pieces. I mean, the first one being Block, formerly known as Square, Mm. suing Visa and MasterCard over interchange fees. So, I mean, this is sort of like a headline story about the battle over credit card interchange fees, which definitely seems to be heating up again. Mm-hmm. Block filed an antitrust lawsuit alleging that Visa and MasterCard have conspired to overcharge Square, in turn causing higher retail prices for customers, for consumers. Mm. Square directly contracts with Visa and MasterCard and itself is the direct pair of those interchange fees and then sort of bundles that up with other services and passes it along to merchants who are using the Square terminal. At the same time, we have Visa's CEO out complaining about the increasingly common tactic of merchants tacking on credit card surcharges, saying it is not a great experience. And I can tell you the last time I was in New York, I noticed this popping up on everything from the corner store bodega to like a Michelin star restaurant where it's, oh, here's everything I paid for. And then here's another like 4% or 5% Mm. tacked on at the end of my receipt for paying with a credit card, which I believe is like a complete violation of merchant rules, but Mm -hmm. clearly people are doing it. And then the last piece is so-called Durban 2.0 or the Credit Card Competition Act of 2023 which wants to require the ability for merchants to choose to route credit card payments on a network that is not Visa or MasterCard. The idea being that this will increase competition, lower pricing, and again, in theory, have that savings passed along to the end consumer. I mean, I do find this collection of stories interesting. This is obviously a perpetual sort of fight, tug of war over who's getting what share of interchange, and both at the issuer and merchant acquirer level, as well as at the consumer level, right? I mean, certain consumers benefit from the rewards that are paid for with this interchange income. I find this fascinating because it's like, I can't think of any other country that looks anything like how this works in the US, just as far as like the scale, the size of the issue. And in a sense, at least in the financial services space, everyone benefits to some extent, and it tends to be a fight over who's getting a bigger or smaller piece of the pie. I think Block's lawsuit alleging Visa and MasterCard are overcharging feels particularly disingenuous given that Block itself in its cash app division partners with Durban-exempt banks 
to issue debit cards and get that sweet Durban exempt interchange income on the Cash App cards. Mm -hmm. And in its Square business, has chosen to partner with Amex to issue merchant cards for those Square merchants, which of course carries a higher interchange rate. So, I mean, a lot of like different moving pieces here. What do you make of the never-ending battle over interchange and who gets what share of it? Well, two things. So one, just to be like crystal clear, anytime interchange rates get capped or lowered or there's sort of movement in that regard, particularly driven by regulation, the money just goes in the merchant's pockets. So like, let's just be like super duper clear. This might have been a question 10, 20 years ago. It's not a question today. Like we've seen this in multiple other countries around the world. The example I always go back to is Australia. When you cap interchange fees, the extra money just goes in merchants' pockets. That's just how it works. They don't pass the savings on to consumers. Their businesses, they have a bottom line. There's just extra revenue sitting there. Obviously, their customers are already perfectly happy to pay the prices they're paying. Otherwise, they wouldn't be in business. So generally speaking, that's what happens. And in particular, it benefits the largest merchants the most, which is why you tend to see the Walmarts of the world get really involved in this, because at that scale, they can actually make some significant revenue by shaving these fees down. Smaller merchants, I don't think particularly care, but they're also not just going to be like, oh, great, money we can pass along to our customers. That's just not the way the world works. So I think that's really important as context. The other thing is, I think Block is just a fascinating company to be sort of bringing this lawsuit as you were kind of outlining, right? Because on the one hand, like as a merchant acquirer, they're getting some of these fees, right? And so it's fascinating. It's almost like seems in a way sort of performative on behalf of their merchants going like, we got you guys. And then they go, well, we're going to sue Visa and MasterCard. And it's like, they're actually like, let's say this lawsuit worked and they lowered those fees. I mean, as you said, they bundled this with other things. So maybe they could still keep their margins the same. But like, theoretically, it's not necessarily good for them. It's good for the merchants that they work for. So I think that's, Really interesting. Given the size of merchants that work with Square, I kind of doubt that those merchants are really clamoring for this either. And so I don't, I'm trying to figure out like who this really benefits and like what the point of this is. And then to your point, Block is a very large, interestingly constructed, clever organization because in addition to the merchant services business, which is what they're best known for, they have Cash App which they obviously issue debit cards. Those are Durban exempt, so they're kind of maximizing the interchange that they get there. They also, as you said, issue now a credit card to their merchants on the Square side, and that is an Amex card. And so they are sort of doing everything they can to optimize that. And then in addition to all of this, Square and Block over time have really flirted a lot with the idea of, why don't we just build our own private network that cuts Visa and MasterCard out entirely. And we're going to connect the consumer cash app side of our business with the Square merchant side of our business in order to keep more on us transactions where we don't have to pay any interchange at all. And we've seen that happen already by bringing those two ecosystems together. Cash app you know, customers can pay with Square merchants. Obviously, their acquisition of Afterpay was also designed to sort of merge these two ecosystems together. So I agree with you. I mean, I find it weirdly disingenuous on the part of Block 
And I also find it a little just strange in terms of like, I don't quite understand what their motivations are to even do this in the first place. It's interesting as, as far as I'm aware, when a consumer uses Cash App Pay at a Square merchant, mm. I don't think that the merchant is getting any break on the processing fee there. I, I no, could be wrong. No. So if anyone is listening and I'm wrong, you know, at me on X. But as far as I'm... <laughs> Sorry, at me on X is funny. That doesn't make any sense. It doesn't. Um, <laughs> as far as I'm aware, the merchant is still paying, what are like 2.9% plus yeah. whatever, 20 cents, 30 cents, something like that. So it's just, you see all these pieces and it's like, okay, either, I think the word performative was good. Like, is this performative to try to please the merchants, to try to please financial services regulators? The whole story here is very odd. In a way, I'm almost more sympathetic to the Visa CEO bashing the surcharges because consumers do legitimately hate those. Now, obviously, Visa has a very aligned, vested interest in not having surcharges steer consumers away from paying that way. But it, at least it's a little more, the logic there's a little more straightforward. This whole thing is happening in the backdrop of like, you kind of referenced this before in terms of the market and how complex it is and all the different players. But one thing you notice if you study this over time is that People are always suing. Visa and MasterCard are always getting in fights with particular merchants. And there's all these stories that come out where it's like, oh, you know, Visa may just cut off this. Merchant might just stop accepting Visa cards. Like there's all these sort of things that happen. And with the exception of Dick Durbin managing to slip through legislation and actually get it passed occasionally, really very little actually tends to happen. And usually it's negotiating and trying to create leverage for negotiations that are happening in back rooms. And it's also like subtle and sort of like shadows moving on a wall. It sort of is almost more like in the Roman Senate where someone would express their displeasure by standing up at a particular moment in time and everyone would go, ooh, and then that person would sit back down. And like to someone who didn't know the intricacies of like Roman Senate etiquette, you'd be like, well, what just happened? Like that was kind of weird. But like people who watch all the time, like, oh my God, they stood up at that time and it was really weird. So it could all just be sort of performative, negotiating, trying to create leverage. I tend to think that's where we're falling, but I suppose we'll see. Time will tell. I mean, I guess staying on our payments theme, MasterCard is saying no to something. Do you want to? <laughs> they, they are. I enjoyed your, Jason wrote up a really lovely outline for this podcast, and the title of this section is, MasterCard says no to drugs. So I think we're about the same age when I was in elementary school. And this was like, I suppose, Ronald Reagan era. There was a giant <laughs> banner in the cafeteria that just said, say no to drugs, which I want to say was like Nancy Reagan, like mid yes. 19, early, late 1980s era. Did you have D.A.R.E., the D.A.R.E. program yeah, in your school? Dare, yeah, D.A.R.E. middle school, we had D.A.R.E. Yeah. Which... Yeah, I don't. <laughs> this is not either here nor there, but the D.A.R.E. program ran a contest for essays written, I guess, about like why you shouldn't do drugs. I'm not sure. I don't even really remember the specific prompt, but I remember that in fifth grade, I won the contest and then discovered that I was going to have to read my essay to the entire school at an assembly. So first and probably most terrifying public speaking experience of my life. But regardless, so between two dare kids, MasterCard saying no to drugs, the story here is that the card network has apparently told processors 
to stop allowing marijuana transactions on debit cards. So if you've sort of looked at this area before, the area of sort of cannabis payments, what you'll know is that generally it's very, very difficult to bank the cannabis industry because while cannabis is legal in numerous states, it is still illegal at a federal level. And so this creates this sort of weird tension where technically, legally, at a federal level, anyone who is subject to federal regulations should not be in any way interacting with the cannabis industry because it is illegal. Obviously, there's a lot of legal, on a state level, cannabis activity that does happen. All of the businesses and consumers that are interacting with that legal cannabis business at a state level still need to make payments and accept payments and make deposits. So it's in this very sort of strange gray area. And one of the challenges for dispensaries' customers is how they make payments, right? And so cash, obviously, is very common cash is also really inconvenient to deal with. There's lots of stories out there about dispensaries getting robbed, having to hire security because they're getting all of their money in cash. They have to make big deposits at the bank. They have to worry about employees stealing from them, so on and so forth. So cash is common, but not ideal. Another tactic that was popular for a while, but then got closed down was the so-called sort of headless ATM approach, which was to basically have an ATM within the dispensary and to sort of process an ATM payment on the debit card that the you know bank associated with it wouldn't necessarily be able to tell what it was being used for, but then it was being used for you know cannabis transactions. Most recently, and this is what MasterCard is getting involved in, they are trying to sort of quash illicit pin debit processing within sort of the cannabis world. And as you might imagine, this has sort of rippled through that ecosystem. A lot of cannabis dispensaries are trying to figure out, okay, how can we get our customers to be able to still make payments? How can we make it somewhat convenient? This, of course, harkens back to lots of other examples that we've had in the past, like Operation Choke Point, where you see the card networks and payment processors in some ways acting as the arm of the law in terms of trying to choke off support for industries that are sort of out of favor, whether that's firearms or payday loans or what have you. Crypto most recently has felt like they've been going through a choke point 2.0 moment. So I don't know, Jason, I mean, I know you're not an expert in all things cannabis banking, but what's sort of your take on this just ongoing Michigas? I am definitely not an expert. We should have Walt, Walt Cox on and, yes. and explain the ins and outs of cannabis banking to us. I mean, this is not terribly surprising to me, right? I mean, if you think of the proliferation of merchant acquiring credit card acceptance payment systems, it is not at all surprising to me that it would be very, very difficult to effectively police how thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of end merchants are actually using those payment terminals. So again, actually another New York story. New York has, whatever, decriminalized or begun legalizing marijuana. Once that passed, you saw all of these sort of, the phrase they use is weed bodegas pop up, which did not have a license, mm -hmm. but it was just like this sort of gray area of like, no one's been granted a license, but like, we don't think the cops are going to come bust us. Right. And I think all of them were using Square or a Square-like point of sale system to sell mm -hmm. cannabis-related products. And it's like, you know that they weren't signing up for that and filling out Square's forum saying like, yeah, this is what we're doing. Right. And so I think it's kind of this 
perpetual game of like cat and mouse of like, okay, well, consumers don't want to be doing this in cash. As you pointed out, there are kind of like real, like logistical sort of safety business reasons not to want to be conducting these operations in cash, particularly because depending on the state, there are zoning requirements about where these businesses can be. Illinois, where I'm from, also has legalized recreational marijuana, but I want to say the rules are like, can't be so many feet from like residential or a school Mm. or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so they tend to be in these sort of remote areas where you can imagine, oh, remote area and you're doing your business all in cash. Sounds like a great place to rob. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it feels like absent congressional action, which I'm going to go ahead and venture is like unlikely to happen. I don't (laughs) see any clear route forward for these businesses, right? I mean, the particularly esoteric nature of like American banking system where you have state charter, federal Mm -hmm. charter, Mm -hmm. some states where this product is legal, but then the payment network specifically not wanting to run afoul of, you know, federal either controlled substance regulation or financial services regulation. It's like, I don't see a clear, in my very uninformed point of view, clear route forward absent moving forward the Safe Banking Act or something comparable. If you could give like Visa and MasterCard executives truth serum, they'd probably say it's kind of absurd that we have to like regulate this, right? Because it's legal in these states. I happen to know, having dug into this area a little bit, that even things like FinCEN and trying to stop financial crime, like if you're a bank that's processing cannabis-related payments, you're technically processing payments that are for illegal activity, right? And so you actually do have to file a suspicious activity report. And what happened is FinCEN got so overwhelmed with suspicious activity reports for routine cannabis purchases in states where it was legal that they actually created a sort of second tier of SARS that you could file specifically for technically illegal, but we're actually really not worried about this SARS. And then the actual SARS that we want FinCEN to pay attention to. So it's just absurd. And we end up kind of wrapping ourselves around the axle with all of these sort of distinctions that don't really make any sense. I think to your point, obviously regulation and a new law would be the right way to address this. I think the other thing that you may see a little bit is in addition to cash, more sort of direct ACH or maybe FedNow payments associated with this. Because as you said, like the card networks, because they operate at a federal level, they have to be really careful around this and they kind of have to crack down on it when it becomes obvious that they have a problem. Individual banks, depending on sort of their risk tolerance and where their charter is and what their focus is, they might have a little bit more ability to enable this. And I think the trick, obviously, with account-to-account payments is how do you set that up? How do you onboard customers? I don't know. Maybe there's an opportunity for a payments app for dispensaries that facilitates account-to-account payments. Probably this is something I'm sure a lot of people are already working on, but like directionally, I could see that becoming a little bit more popular as an alternative to cash. But yeah, I mean, this is just kind of a mess and it seems like it will be until lawmakers step in and fix it. One fun fact about the Netherlands, people often have the misconception that marijuana is legal here. That is technically not correct. It is illegal, but tolerated, including being illegal to sell. Yet, I have heard the coffee shops, aka our version of the weed bodega, uh, they take MasterCard. (laughs) Well, so maybe MasterCard just needs to get over themselves. They're already enabling this in in the (laughs) Netherlands, just like, you know, 
step up and just live with the consequences. Yeah, it's funny. I actually didn't know that. That's so interesting. Okay, speaking of worldwide financial services challenges, you have one more story that I think we should quickly hit before we get to Can't Let It Go. Yeah, so this is the launch of Sam Altman's WorldCoin, which I will describe as a vaguely dystopian retina scan-based global identification with the sort of stated purpose being scanning somebody's retina to issue this credential that verifies that the holder of the credential is human and is a unique human. So you Mm. can have one and only one, and it proves that you're not an AI, I guess. There's also a crypto component because, of course, there is. In order to sort of convince or encourage people to sign up for this ID, the project gives you 25, I guess, world tokens or WLD tokens to those who scan their retinas plus one token per week. It's not really clear to me what these tokens are supposed to do. And 25% of the overall token supply has been reserved for insiders. So I understand that to mean the company itself, as well as its investors, which include Blockchain Capital, Bain, and Andreessen Horowitz. Mm -hmm. Part of the narrative of the project has been that as AI encroaches on human employment, UBI, or universal basic income, will become necessary and that we'll need a identifier to ensure that only actual humans collect it and only collect it once, collect their share, so fraud prevention. I find all of this a little bit ironic given that Altman is also the CEO of OpenAI, the company behind the wildly popular ChatGPT. The project itself hasn't been without controversy. At this point, they're on their Series C, so it's been several years of development, including traveling to low-income countries, primarily in the global south, to collect training data, aka pictures of people's eyeballs, to sort of develop and train its models and the hardware and some of the practices, and this has been covered in MIT Technology Review and somewhere else, I want to say BuzzFeed News, in pretty good depth, but being sort of employing misleading techniques to convince people to sign up for this, including persuading or inducing with cash or gifts, including AirPods, and just sort of treating the the on-the-ground staff who are operating these orbs to collect the iris scans pretty poorly. I mean, Alex, is this objectively a dystopian nightmare? I mean, I think it is, right? There's a scene in Minority Report that's exactly this, right? And so, I mean, I think it is truly objectively a dystopian nightmare. I think, is it a useful and needed dystopian nightmare is, I guess, a question that's up for debate. I mean, honestly, this whole thing reminds me of, and this is kind of a strange reference, but do you remember when Elon Musk briefly was making flamethrowers? Do you remember that? I do not. Yeah. So like very briefly, I think as part of like the tunnel boring company that I was working on, they were selling like flamethrowers and there was a video of like Elon Musk shooting a flamethrower. And you're like, this is just part and parcel of, would you just chill out and not do all of these things? You're doing too much. You're like building cars that are supposed to be safe and sending rockets to space. And now here you are with a flamethrower and it's, it's just, it's too much. You need to just chill out and stop doing these things. I'm kind of feeling that same way about Sam Altman, just in the, okay, so you're working on this sort of generative AI revolution. You have made public comments about how dangerous AI can and probably will be, but you're still doing this. Now you're sort of driving this kind of global project to collect scans of everyone's eyeballs. 
with a vision of what is inevitably going to happen in the future, why we're going to need this technology, because machines that you're building are going to replace all of us and we'll need to just hand out universal basic income to everyone to give them some sense of purpose. Like It's very strange when there's someone who is involved with every single aspect of a rather concerning development for society and they seem just so convinced that this is the future that's going to happen that are like, well, it would be irresponsible. Elon Musk, we all need flamethrowers. You're like, no, like we don't. You could just chill out a bit and maybe we don't need all of these things. So I'm not wild about it. I guess I'm curious in light of the Ripple ruling if these WLD tokens are securities or not. I guess based on the precedent that was set with that ruling, the tokens that are sold to insiders or given to insiders, maybe those are securities, but the ones that are just sort of randomly being given out to people who sign up for this maybe aren't. I don't know. How the crypto thing factors into it is strange. I would have significant privacy concerns myself individually in terms of having someone scan my eyeball for a purpose yet to be determined. So yeah, I mean, it seems dystopian to me, but maybe this is useful because he's going to drive us to a place where it has to be used. I don't know. What do you think? I struggle with the idea that a non-government issued credential is ever going to gain widespread traction, at least within our world, right? Financial services world. And I know it's sort of part of the whole narrative about Altman's project, or there's apparently there's like four or five different self-sovereign identity projects using sort of different mechanisms. I went down a rabbit hole earlier today, (laughs) and this is just one of them. You have like sort of biometric driven ones and social proof driven ones. I have a really hard time imagining that in financial services world, these type of non-government issued credentials are ever going to pass muster for the use cases that that they need to be used for. That's primarily around KYC, anti-money laundering, et cetera. And I guess maybe damned if you do, damned if you don't. It's like you can say, okay, I don't trust giving over my personal identifiers to Sam Altman. I guess the argument on that side is, well, why do you trust the U.S. government? And certainly there have been, you know, various data breaches of government sources, including like the Office of Personnel Management, which is where my identity credentials were stolen from, Mm. or major bureaus like Equifax, whatever. But yeah, the whole thing feels very icky, and it's not even clear really what the use case is, right? They're not saying we are going to give you UBI, but like maybe there's some future state where AI generates all of this wealth, and then like this is going to be the mechanism we need to be able to redistribute that wealth I guess, to avoid societal collapse. Again, kind of go tying it back to crypto stuff. There was a detail that was released from someone about Sam Bankman-Fried's plan to buy an island. Did you see that one too? I did see that. Was it him or was it somebody, was it his brother or something? But yes, yeah, I saw that. Yeah, I think yeah, it, was, yeah, it was his yeah. brother like talking about, well, we should just do this and then we'll, maybe we'll find other uses for it. And it's just like, there's a level that you get to where you're like thinking about, oh, I think this is a good idea where you should just sort of dial it back and be like, no, I don't think you should be concerning yourself with this. And it kind of goes to your point about the U.S. government. It's, yeah, I think the U.S. government or other governments around the world, there are very legitimate questions about what role should they play? What level of trust should we have? But those are on individual country basis. These guys are out globally trying to collect eyeballs from literally every human on the planet. It's such a VC idea to be like, yeah, we're going to give you a bunch of money. You go out and collect everyone's eyeballs, and then we'll figure out a way to monetize it. 
that is the epitome of, well, the TAM is huge. The TAM is every human being on Earth. And so I share your general skepticism. And I think just from a PR perspective, if there was any other way to do this without scanning someone's eyeballs, they probably would have gotten less bad headlines because that by itself just sort of makes people jump right to that minority report sort of area. So with that, should we do some can't let it goes real quick? Yeah, let's do it. Okay, let me go first, because mine, I already wrote about it in my newsletter, so I won't beat this dead horse too much more. But I did happen to find the story about Revolut losing $20 million to fraudsters to be pretty glorious in its details. So just to sort of recap super quickly, it was reported in the Financial Times that Revolut's payment system, specifically in the U.S., allowed criminals to steal money from Revolut by essentially sort of conducting transactions that would be declined and then that Revolut would mistakenly refund based on the differences in the way that the European payment system works versus the U.S. system. This was a problem that sort of appeared somewhat sporadically in 2021 when customers just had this problem in the U.S. And then somehow organized criminal groups in advance of Revolut discovering this problem found out about this flaw And then much like a rat sort of going to a feeder, just started hammering that bar as hard as they could. They got about $23 million out. Revolut was only able to recover about $3 million. And my absolute favorite detail by far from the story was that Revolut systems didn't pick this problem up at all. And the only way that they found out this was happening was that the partner bank that they were working with in the U.S., notified them that they were holding less cash than expected. And that's what led Revolut to discovering this problem. And I got to say, if your partner bank in a country that you're expanding into is the one that's telling you that they have less money than they should have, I don't know, Revolut's trying to get the European regulators to give them a banking license or trying to get a UK banking license. That's never going to happen if you can't just keep track of the amount of money that you should have. So anyway, I found this story amazing. I saw some online chatter basically saying, oh, every card company has fraud. This isn't a big deal. But I think if you like look at the details of it, exactly what you're saying, it's like, yeah, every card company has fraud, but like not knowing, (laughs) not knowing how much money you have in the account or it not matching what it's supposed to match, particularly in the wider context of the audit issues that Revolut has had, suggested something more problematic was happening here. Yeah, yeah. Well, and speaking of that audit, the last thing that's kind of funny is you might remember that BDO, which is their auditor, they were late in getting out their audited financials for 2021. And when they finally did, BDO included a qualified opinion in that audit statement saying that they couldn't necessarily verify all of the details relating to about a portion of the revenue that Revolut had. And Revolut flipped out about that and put out a statement going, no, they're wrong. This is all perfectly solid. Turns out that two-thirds of their 2021 net profit was stolen. So I have to say, good job by BDO for taking their time and making sure to put out that qualified opinion, because I'm guessing that it might have been related to those. Indeed. With that, my can't let it go, also something I wrote about, so I'll try not to beat a dead horse. Let's stop trying to make no KYC crypto debit cards happen. It's not a good idea. It's not compliant. And I'm talking, of course, about Lasso. You know, this came across my radar last week and basically was using Celtic Bank via Stripe issuing to purportedly issue prepaid, reloadable prepaid debit cards 
Although in reality, it was issuing on a commercial payment card bin because Stripe mm. does not offer consumer issuing. So a little red flag right there. <laughs> and the sort of value prop was you can take your stable coins, load them on this and spend it. No identifying information, no address, no SSN, government ID, etc. Obviously a zillion KYC, AML, uh, among other problems with this. So yeah, let's just stop doing this because this is at least the second one. <laughs> yeah, no more. I mean, was it Zelf that was the first Zelf, one yeah. we saw? Yeah, and that was, I, we both wrote about that and that was amazing. But yeah, don't do this. Maybe don't build products for people that find the value proposition and no KYC card attractive. Like maybe that's just a bad market segment to build for overall. It's disturbing to me that crypto folks tend to find that just like a super appealing idea. And yes, Stripe, come on, be better with this stuff, right? I have no idea how this marketing material got on their website and just seemingly passed by all of the reviews it was supposed to go through because clearly this would be an issue just looking at the headline to say nothing of all the details you dug into. I think we should probably leave it there. All right, we will stop ranting. Thank you all so much for listening and we'll be back again at this next month. Until then, Jason, be well. A good one. Thank you for listening to this episode of FinTech Takes. Stay up to date with emerging companies and the latest FinTech trends by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. And if you love FinTech Takes, please tell a friend.